Hello and welcome to Failing Boldly, a podcast that invites people to share stories about failure, resilience, and perseverance. I'm your host, Christian Kuhn. Normally right now, many of us would be glued to the TV watching the Summer Olympics, but of course, it has become one of the many unfortunate pandemic postponements this year. Since 1960, the Paralympics have also been held the same year as the Olympics, and they too have been postponed. Today, I talk with one of the athletes who would have competed in this year's competition, Susanna Scaroni. Susanna is a wheelchair racer with an emphasis on the marathon. She competed in the 2012 and 2016 Paralympics and has been one of the world's elite marathoners for almost 10 years. In this conversation, we talk about her disappointment in not competing in this year's games, misconceptions about para-athletes, and keys to her resilience. I hope you enjoy it. Susanna Scaroni, thank you so much for being on the Feeling Boldly podcast. Yes, thank you. It's great to be here. Um, thanks for having me. Well, we're about, I can't remember, is right now, is when were the Paralympics supposed to happen in August or when exactly were the dates? Yes. Yeah, so the dates were like beginning about the 23rd of August. Okay. So end of August into the beginning of September. Okay. Well, before hearing some of your backstory, I just want to check in and ask about the disappointment um, when it got postponed earlier this year because of the pandemic. What were some of the emotions you were feeling when you yeah. learned the news? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's kind of funny. I think for my specific situation, um, the last two games that I qualified for, you know, it was that really like close to the games trials competition where I actually made the team. So that was the end of June. Um, and whenever you go through that, you know, it's, it's so much emotions to be named to the team so close to like when you're going to the games, um, that you, you experience that entire year of like unknown, um, and this year, you know, I qualified in the marathon in October. So I was like, wow, I don't even have to go through that. I already <laughs> know I can just train a little bit more relaxed. Um, and so then they didn't cancel. So I did kind of experience this sort of, um, I would say a different experience than those who hadn't been named to the team yet. Like I already had been named. And so I was really um, kind of honing in on the marathon and, to have them canceled. Um, while I will say it was a disappointment because I already had made the team, you know, it was one of those things that I, I, it was on my schedule and I knew I was going. Um, I also felt extremely supportive of the decision. Yeah. It was one of those things where it's, it just made so much sense to me that that was the clear and right decision. Um, that I was able to sort of um, emotionally focus more there yeah, and know that that was for the betterment of the world. And um, I was just also thinking, you know, I'm thankful I made it. Like that was a giant achievement in and of itself. And so I focus on those two aspects. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is the plan then, does that, I guess I assume you're automatically qualified if it happens in 2021. Yes, they did decide um, that they would, yeah, they would keep the already qualified athletes onto that next games. Okay, Um, okay. Yeah. Well, I think it would be helpful for folks uh, who may not know your stories to talk a little bit about how you got into racing, but also for those who don't know the nature 
of your disability. And so I read that you were in a car accident when you were five. And mm-hmm. then, so would you mind talking about that and both growing up um, with the disability, but then also what was it that got you into racing? Yeah, thank you. That's, not, that's perfect. Um, yeah, so I grew up in a very small farming community in eastern Washington state, uh, just, south of, or just south of Spokane, Washington. And um, I was the only, so I was, yeah, I was injured when I was five. My family, my mom and my oldest brother were driving um, in January and slid on some black ice into an oncoming truck. And I, you know, I severed my spinal cord as like a complete injury. So um, what that just means is below the site of injury, I have like no sensation at all um, in my legs basically for mine, because I have a pretty low spinal cord injury. Um, So like I said, that was when I was five. And that means a lot for someone growing up with a disability, the age sort of of its onset, in my opinion. Um, And not only that, I was the only person that at the time in my entire town to have a disability, um, at least to use a wheelchair. And So I think for me, the combination of, you know, being in kindergarten and not having these preconceived notions of like, okay, we're going to separate the kids with disabilities to be in this area and then the other kids to be in another area. I just grew up always playing alongside my my peers and my family members. And I know now, I know how much of an impact that had for me just in like being able to become creative on ways to join the game and just also having a mindset of I can join the game. Like I am going to join the game. This is the game we're all playing. Um, And I know that now that's real. That really helped me to achieve the independence that I have. Um, And also to feel included. Hmm. I always felt included. And um, that was a huge driver, I think of my success to this day. But I will also say, you know, I didn't, it was to the point that I didn't really feel different ever. Um, And in the community I grew up in, like, sports are huge. So when you enter third grade, it's the first time you're able to play basketball. And that's a big deal in that school. So like everybody else, I played basketball that year. Um, And that's actually when I I know I realized I was different. Um, It was sports and that level of competition that are good at showing discrepancies. Mm. Um, And it was a really, really harsh, eye-opening experience for me. I could feel sort of uh, like it was a rule that everyone had to pass me the ball at least once during the game. And then I always, I knew I was the last one to get down to the court. And then it felt like they waited on me to pass me the ball. And then they kept going. And then it was like kind of just on repeat. And I hated the experience. And I said, I'm never doing that again. That was Mm. awful. Um, meaning basketball or competing in athletics in general at the time, at the time, at the time I linked it to basketball, but I think I would have felt it was, it was probably athletics in general. Mm. Um, and so then the next year when I was in fourth grade Shriners hospital, which is located, there's, there's a Shriners hospital in Spokane and they had this big sports day event, um, for all the patients. And I went there And I learned about a local wheelchair basketball team that's in Spokane. Um, And so at the sports day event, you get to try out basketball. Um, 
And I had a great time like doing that. And then they encouraged me to come to practice. And I was like, no, nope, nope, nope. Definitely not doing that again. Um, but my mom was like, well, yes, you are. <laughs> and so um, against my will, my mom did uh, make me go to the first basketball practice, which was an hour away. It wasn't like that close either to get to. And I like realized that that day, like I was just playing basketball. It was what I had dreamed of the year before, but I, I felt the difference at that point. Like I knew that there was now, like everybody else was using a wheelchair. And so at that point we were focusing on basketball skills and there was never a question about like what, like, I don't know. There was no accommodating your disability. It was just, that was already accommodated for, and this was just the sport. And I realized then that I loved it. Um, and so I will never forget that basketball practice, but then I joined the team then, um, a very supportive family who was willing to take me up to Spokane every week for practice. And from there, um, because I had fallen in love with it, I made friends really quickly. I, they said, okay, guys, track practice is starting on Sunday. This was in the spring. Um, and I was like gung-ho about going. I'd never, I had no idea what wheelchair track was going to be or anything. Um, but I was, I had no questions that I was going to do it. And my family was willing to take me up again for another practice during the week. Um, and that's when I started wheelchair racing. So I then continued to do both of those sports all the way through like junior high and high school. Um, and competed on a few world's teams while I was in high school for wheelchair racing. And um, then I graduated. And at that point, I had applied both to the University of Illinois because you just, if you grow up with a disability, um, you know of U of I just because there is a national wheelchair racing training center here. Um, and so I applied to come here. I got in. But the out-of-state tuition was so expensive that um, my mom was like, I, nope, that's not actually the amount of debt I would like you to be accruing this early. So I uh, elected to go to school in Montana, in Helena, Montana, at Carroll College. And I, so I went there. And because there was no wheelchair basketball team there, um, again, I was the only person really with a, who used a wheelchair at Carroll. And so I brought my racing chair with me. I was like, well, I can't do basketball anymore because I don't have a team, but I can always train. Like, I love it. And so while I was in Montana, I just took out my racing chair every day um, when the weather was okay and continued to exercise on my own too. Like, the school wasn't very accessible. And so I talked to the football coach because the football team had a private weightlifting gym that was on the lower level of the workout center for students and they were super supportive and they're like oh of course like you can have your own key um just come in whenever you want so I and I was just kind of doing this on my own like it was something I loved doing so I would lift weights down there I would use the pool and I had my racing chair um and I was just kind of going about my life um studying they didn't even have a nutrition program which was my kind of my focus all throughout high school but they had, they recommended I study chemistry and health science as like a double major. Um, and if I was interested in nutrition, I could probably get started with that. Um, so that's what I did. 
And then two years later, the coach at the U of I called me and he was like, Susanna, I know you were, you've been interested every year that I've met you as a high schooler. Um, and so we now have this out of state funding opportunity uh, for students that would provide you with a full ride scholarship um, in addition to like your books and your housing being paid for. And I was like, whoa, it was something I hadn't really considered very much after I moved to Montana. Um, but I, I mean, I prayed a lot about it and I talked to some of my mentors who were at Carroll and they were just like, Susanna, you train all the time. You are the only wheelchair racer here. How could you not go to this incredible opportunity? Um, and so I just felt super supported and I applied to transfer over there in 2011. Let me back up a little bit perhaps and ask, when did you realize that you might be essentially world, a world-class athlete? Was it after you transferred to Illinois or did you know in high school that perhaps this is something that is going to take me beyond just doing well and, and meets around Washington? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would say I knew because I went to junior nationals every year. And so you get a, you get a little bit of a gauge of at least in the States, how you're doing. Um, and I would do well there. Um, but I honestly didn't have a great gauge of where I would be in the world until, until I came to the U of I actually. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until I we started looking at like kind of where my marathon times were at um, that I was able to see that like, wow, I think the 20 milers I was doing in Montana have helped me develop like a, a bit of a like biomechanical efficiency in this sport. So I, it, it, it did take coming here and seeing like on the adult stage, how you're doing, um, for me to have that. You've been to two Olympics. You were in London and in Rio and have competed in all the world major marathons and have done well at all of those venues or all those marathons. Can you walk us through what would be a typical training week uh, yeah. for you and the, the process that you get to, to, to be able to compete at that level? Yeah. Um, so I would say a, a very typical week, um, at least leading up to those events, we like to do um, some high speed interval work on the track uh, in the morning. Our sport is very, like it's very technical. And so um, in one of the biggest in, or one of the biggest variables in our sport has to do with drafting, which is where you have somebody in front of you and they're kind of breaking the wind and you're being a little conserve energy behind that. So you can be in either a position. You can be in front, not conserving energy and knowing people behind you are, or you can be in the back, you know, conserving energy. And so we do a lot of work on the track in the mornings to get better and better at sprinting to a really high intensity off of a moderate pace, which mimics a lot of races, whether you're on the track or the road, um, there'll be a draft line and somewhere along the line, someone's gonna make an attack and everyone's gonna have to accelerate from a rolling moderate pace. So we do a lot of those kind of skills in the mornings on the track. And then in the afternoons, we'll have like a longer steady 
like 75% RPE um, push out on the road. So they're about an hour and a half in the morning and then about an hour in the afternoon with a couple of lifts each week to just kind of work on shoulder stability and shoulder mobility. Um, and some pulling exercises. We do so much pushing forward um, that my coach, who also is a wheelchair racer, um, has a medal at the games. And he really recognizes the importance of preserving our shoulders. And so our strength work pretty much focuses only on um, supporting our training and supporting our lifestyle, which holds a lot of pushing forwards. Mm. So um, we train, yeah, six days a week. About 11 sessions is a normal week and always have Sunday off. It's a rest day. That makes, I guess it makes sense now that you think about it. But uh, for me, when I thought about it, all the different, I mean, I can imagine you're working your arms and shoulders and your cardio and all that, but I had not thought at all about the technical part of it too. And not just drafting, but also do you do work on, I don't know how to, how to ask this, um, how to most efficiently use your arms and your body and everything else as you're racing? Yes. And that's a big part of the sport. It's very individual. Not only is it because it's like, it's, it's a racing sport, but everybody's disability is different. And so the keys to being successful in this sport are, you know, minimizing your limitations and maximizing, um, the muscle groups that you have and not, not only muscle groups, but like your leverage. So like how long your arms are, um, you can, you can manipulate how you're seated in your racing chair and you can manipulate, um, the size of your hand rings. And then you can ma- manipulate like the size of your wheels to an extent to try to optimize your ability to generate as much force without, um, losing any force. So we work on that a lot because it's different for every single person. Um, And my coach kind of emphasizes having a speedometer on your chair because what works for the person next to you, given the nature of all disabilities, is not necessarily what will make you the fastest wheelchair Hmm. racer. Hmm. And so there are like, there's a lot of physics involved and it's just kind of so much trial and error for me. Um, taken me I still continue to work on specific skills that I'm bettering like climbing climbing is a different skill than a flat and so it can take even for me to this point still trying to figure out the best stroke style Mm. to have the fastest climb and um, a lot of the times it's counterintuitive and it's just really watching the, the feedback, like what is actually faster? <laughs> and because, um, yeah, it's very individual. For that yeah. Reason. I've been a runner for most of my life and I've never uttered the word. There's a lot of physics involved, but, <laughs> but yes. for, that's an yeah, added some, some circles. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting to, that that's another yeah. component in, in your sport that athletes have to take into consideration. Right. Exactly. It's really, it's cool. Um, I mean, it, for me, cause there's two sides of it. It can be very hopeful or it can be very frustrating and it can be both as well. <laughs> um, it can be frustrating and that, you know, you might be very physically fit and everything 
like you have a perfect diet, you sleep well, you're motivated, but you may be in a really bad seating position for you. Um, and then it's, it's a big process to get a new racing chair. And it's better to know exactly what seating position you need before you order it. But you don't always know that until you've trialed it out. So it can be very frustrating sport in that um, you really want your equipment to optimize your body and your functionality. Um, but it's not always straightforward in what that equipment measurement needs to be until you've played around with it. Yeah. It makes it really nice to be here at the U of I with so many athletes because then you really can like bounce around chairs a little bit. I mean, not like you don't race in someone else's chair, but you could jump in it and try to just gauge what your winter designed to be based on a specific chair. Uh, but for, for entrance into the sport, it's very much a barrier. Um, yeah, which is frustrating. Yeah. I'm wondering what misconceptions generally speaking, people have for, particularly for world-class para-athletes. I don't know if you have people who come up to you and talk about what an inspiration you are, which on the one hand, I would assume you take as a compliment. But on the other hand, I wonder too, if people totally underestimate the amount of work and training that you go into as well. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. And it is, it's a lot of both. Um, it's taken me, I've been kind of a professional level for the, about eight years. It's taken me about, you know, six to seven of those years to really understand the compliment within that statement because mm -hmm. it is a lot of times loaded with more of a, the bar is set so low for you that mm -hmm. the fact that you're an athlete, like that's inspiring. And it is a double-edged sword. Like, I'm inspired by athletes. I'm inspired by people who are resilient and, you know, find out what they can do in the midst of a lot of non-normative constrictions. However, um, it's, it's something that like you're alluding to. It's oftentimes I think seen as, an inspiration because the bar is set so low for people mm -hmm. with disabilities versus the fact that, you know, these are athletes who train 11 sessions a week. This is their career. Um, it's not just that they're being recreational. Um, the same, like you can, I can get told at the grocery store that I'm an inspiration for coming out that day or for driving. And I'm just like the word inspirational has sort of lost some meaning for me. Yeah when it comes to that. And I just, I think that both the Sochi Paralympics, the winter games, and then also the London Paralympics um, in 2012, they really emphasized focusing on teaching about the physiologies of the different athletes and the classifications. Um, and they even go, went into a little bit of the training. And I think just that piece of education that was, that's not usually there um, to teach about the sports and to teach about the athletes training. I think that helped those games not focus on the fact that, wow, this is a, a high competition for all. Like 
all, even with disabilities, but more so on the athletic endeavors of those mm-hmm. athletes. Uh, but that's kind of been a newer thing on a global stage. I think, I think there's a mixture of both um, people out there when they tell me I'm inspirational, but I, I do think part of it is because the bars are set for are set lower. I wonder when people say that to you, and if you have a sense in the way that they're saying it, that's almost like they're equating what you do with say the special Olympics, which is, which is good in and of itself, but they're different. And so do you very, obviously very different. And so is that the kind of sentiment that you pick up on when people, especially people you don't know? Well, I mean, the thing that happens almost as frequently as being said I'm inspirational is I heard you're going to the Special Olympics or things like that. (laughs) So I think, and I I fully recognize that our country has a lot of um, weaknesses and gaps in just educating the community on the differences. Um, And so I take that into account that they may not be, they just may not know that there's a major difference between the Special Olympics and the Paralympics. Um, But it's like, it just kind of like tears your heart in half when you, when you're not that, and it's like you were saying, it's not that there, I'm not grateful that the Special Olympics do go on, but there's a major difference when one, is you know it's the the tri- there's trials there's the top three of the world that are going there for each country it's not um it's not like you're petitioning to go um and it's it's more open it's just like there's major differences and um it's not seen that way it may it might depend on the mood you're in that day are there days where you feel like you have to do some education or I would, that I would imagine is also emotionally exhausting or there's some days you just, you just say thank you and and move on. I, um, actually, I always take the chance to say, actually it's the Paralympics, um, that I've competed at, which is different than the special Olympics. Like I try to be very positive about it because I, I can't trust that I wouldn't be any different if I didn't know there was a difference. Um, so I try to use it as an educational piece in a positive way. So every athlete, part of the, this podcast, not only talking about failure, but also you mentioned resilience and, and perseverance. And any athlete is going to have days when the alarm goes off or they know the time they have to get out there on the track or on the roads, whatever, and they are just not feeling it. So what are the things that you do emotionally or spiritually or psychologically to help you get back out there and do the work? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I... Yeah, like it definitely happens. Um, it definitely happens. And for me, what I think about is honestly, I do a lot of meditating um, in order to flip my mood around. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a prayer for meditation. I try to be grateful um, because for me, gratitude is what is able to like swap my emotions around when I'm feeling grumpy. Because um, it just, it, it immediately does it for me. So during like, basically what happens to me is I'm a morning person. Like I love training. I don't get me wrong. It's more like I do have frustrations within a training. So I'm taking this question more towards that. Um, Mm -hmm. And the frustrations can be anything. It could be like super humid out that day. And I'm just like slipping a little bit, but but to get me through those days, um, I, 
always start listing off the things I'm grateful for. Hmm. Um, and it can take the entire training and it can help the entire training some days, depending on the conditions. And there are about that many things that I'm grateful for. <laughs> so, um, that for me is what is my go-to for switching my mood. And then I know because I've done it for this long that if I'm working on those skills with a better attitude, regardless of whether I'm consciously focusing on the training for me by going through it with a better attitude, I just, um, I know that I'm physically working on the skills and I am just trusting in that it's better to have a better attitude sometimes than to just focus on this one skill, but you're slipping through it anyways. So it's like, it's constantly making you upset. <laughs> um, that's, that's what I use to get through those kind of skills. Yeah. Along with that, do you mind if I ask if you've had, or if there've been moments in your life, particularly relating to the accident where on the one hand, it's a wonderful practice to, to think about and reflect on gratitude and things for which you have. But have you also had moments of feeling uh, resentful about the accident or seeing other folks who are able to use their legs and kind of going down into uh, dark places? Has, has that been an issue for you throughout your life? Are you at a place now because it's, it happened several years ago or yeah. how have you responded in those moments or if you have? Thank you. That's a good question. I, so I'm 29 now and I feel like through, as I, as I get older, there are new, there are new experiences of being alive that do remind me, um, of, I mean, they, they make me think like, uh, if I could walk, I would be able to be going hiking right now, which is like Mm. always wanted to go hiking and like, go to the beach and even just like now like during the summer when it's like going through the grass like and on going through the snow in the winter it always without a fail each season brings it up that I'm like man I just sometimes wish I could walk um additionally my legs since I can't feel them at all I do sometimes like get like they get some injuries or some like things on them that then I need to deal with and I'm like, wow, I can't even feel that, but yet it's impacting my life. Um, So that absolutely happens. And every single time that I start feeling those feelings, I do personally go back that, no, I wouldn't be here. I maybe wouldn't like hiking even if I hadn't had this like life of travel where I've been to so many places and learned about the environment and how much um, it means to me. And I, have to realize that even just the knowledge that those activities exist and that I want others to do them. If I can't do it in the same way as them, um, I, I just have to steer my thoughts in that direction because I am more grateful for the fact that I have this life. I have this knowledge of how great those activities are. Um, I have an incredibly great life in general and I've learned so much about diversity in the world through this life. And so I just have to tell myself that it's, 
there's more to life than hiking. <laughs> mm. And there's more to happiness than being able to, you know, go as easily in the snow to walk a dog, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's more steering my thoughts in just another element of the reality I live in. Yeah. They're yeah. both real. They're both real. Yeah. Well, part of the reality that you're living in right now is before we started recording, you mentioned that you're pretty much a full-time student and a full-time athlete. And so you're working on your master's degree. Is it nutritional sciences? Is that the actual yep, degree? Yep, that's the division. Yeah, so nutritional sciences. Okay. What, what, um, what got you interested in that field? It sounded like earlier that even in high school and maybe even earlier that that was an area that interested you. Yeah, yeah, actually. Um, so I began being super interested in nutrition, um, sort of the end of my high school career, because I, I mean, I can just tell you, like I had an eating disorder in junior high, started in junior high. And, um, it led to a pretty significant injury that I had, um, playing basketball undernourished in my junior year of high school, which led to a year of bed rest. Um, so that was like between junior and senior year of high school. Um, that was also during 2008. So I did not get to go to the trials that year. Um, and I was on bed rest and I wasn't, I wasn't exercising. I wasn't training. Um, and after, like during that experience, um, it was like a requirement for me to see a dietitian every week. Mm. And I, so I was doing that. And that it was okay. Um, but then my mom and my coach and the dietitian made this agreement that like, I wasn't, I wouldn't be able to go to college unless I like achieved a certain weight. Um, and so like, I wouldn't say that's always the best strategy, but anyways, it worked for me to like, at least have motivation. Um, but what actually happened for me, was during that period of weight, gaining weight, I just like, had a shocking experience that I was actually getting faster when I was like training mm. again. <laughs> and, um, I had more energy also. And I just, it seems so silly now, but I totally didn't expect that. I very much thought that I needed to be as small as possible to be faster. Um, and then I started eating and I started getting faster and stronger. And, it was sort of because of that actual experience that I was like, wow, there's really something to the fuel you're giving your body um, and to how tissues are just sustained in general to make you strong. Um, and that food's related to that and eating's related to that. Um, so I've been kind of fascinated with nutrition, especially for athletes, but um, even in general, when you have to kind of relearn the role of food, like that, um, it was eye-opening for me. And I've ever since been passionate about nutrition science, biochemistry, um, muscle physiology, exercise science. They're just so cool. And, <laughs> um, I continue to learn still about all of them. Well, I always I end these conversations by asking my guests to share a, a failure story. And so this can be anything from your life. It could be personal or professional something that happened yesterday or many years ago, something lighthearted or serious, whatever. So I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing a, a story. 
Yeah, no, um, I, I keep going back to this as my, my story. Um, and it has to do with grad school. And um, I, so I, as you said, I'm a grad student in nutrition science. Um, I, when I very first started, my advisor uh, put, gave me a study that was going to look at potatoes for endurance cyclists. Um, he's like, oh yeah, you're into endurance cycling and nutrition. Like this would be a perfect study for you. And it was also my first step into grad school and I had never experienced research at all. And um, the weight of like unknown things in relation to how to design a study um, just like caused me to like completely just kind of break down to be honest. Mm. I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing here. Um, I'd never really felt that way. I was used to being able to study things like finding out knowledge by like the knowledge that already existed and just studying it. But this was like, okay guys, we don't know the answer to this. So you have to figure out how to find the answer. Um, and for me, that was like, just, it shook me so much that I, um, I almost considered quitting grad school on the third day. <laughs> um, but then I will, I'll say I've, I've been in grad school now for three years. Um, and what has helped me learn about nutrition is thinking or about research um, and overcoming that failure because the study was then given to one of my lab mates who was better equipped <laughs> at that point or just psychologically better equipped. Um, I just helped out with the study uh, has been linking the similarities to wheelchair racing because hmm. it's been something I've never been afraid of ever. I, I don't even get racing nerves. And so I was like, what's going on that I can, I can go through these challenging practices every day, but I get a challenge in the, in the lab and I'm like, I don't know what to do. So I'm getting scared and nervous and I want to quit. And I realized that it has been the practice. Like it's been the physically getting out there. You can't be good at wheelchair racing just by thinking about 20 miles. You have to actually do them and you have to figure out how to get around the curves, how to get up the hills. And you have to do that a lot of times because like I was saying, after eight years, I'm still learning how to get up the hills better. Um, but there's a lot of trial and error involved in wheelchair racing. And I accept that and I do it. And I accept the hardness of it and how difficult it is. And so it's, it was for me just realizing it's the same thing with anything that's unknew, unknown to you and that's new. And for me, that's been research and a different style of learning. Um, and so I have to tell myself this all the time. Like whenever – it's more like for me, the, the workouts I don't want to do that you were asking about earlier, mm -hmm. it has to do with like a research task. <laughs> And okay. so I have to tell myself, this is that challenging workout that you're willing to get up and out of bed for. Um, and you do strategies to help you through it. You think about, you know, I've been on that route before. I'm going to know what to expect. Um, I have to go down this research route today so that it's easier and easier down the road because I've done it before and I know what I'm doing. Um, so it's mostly been doing a research project in graduate school. That's been my like failure. That's now turning into, um, honestly training for an event, a very serious event for me. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah. 
Susanna, thank you so much for being uh, on this uh, episode and this podcast and best of luck to you as you continue to train. And we hope and hope and pray that 2021 you'll be uh, back out there representing uh, our country. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was great to be here. And that's this week's episode. Thanks again to Susanna for giving her time for this conversation. To keep up with Susanna, you can follow her on Twitter at Kenyon Scaroni and on Instagram at Sue To find out more about my writings and back episodes of Failing Boldly, you can go to my website, christiancoon.com, and I hope you'll subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts too, as I put these out every other Thursday. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.